Hello there. Welcome to episode 20. Episode 20, can't believe I got this far, of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Laura Nissen, who is from the University of Helsinki. Laura is here in Canterbury at the University of Kent for a year, undertaking a project, a, well, a postdoctoral project, on sensory studies in the Roman world, particularly looking at Ostia, Pompeii and Herculaneum. So today we're chatting about how she's finding life in Canterbury, uh, obviously talking a lot about the current project on sensory experience, which raises some uh, certain interesting questions that got me thinking a lot, particularly how would one have experienced going before a Roman emperor? What would the experience be like of an audience with a Roman emperor? And most notably, how did Roman emperors actually smell? Yeah, question you don't really think about. But as we've touched upon before in previous episodes of the podcast with the likes of Patty and Giacomo, sensory studies a very much growing field. We're also going to be talking about sleeping arrangements in the Roman world. That was the subject of Laura's PhD. And again, it's another question that came up in this. Did Romans have earplugs? Presumably yes, but we don't really know. Also, we tried to finally answer the question from the episode many weeks ago with Rebecca Ushwood. What did the Romans actually wear in bed? And also as well, we're going to be talking about the state of classics and archaeology in Finland. As Laura says, it's not looking too great at the moment, but uh, there are some shining lights like the schools that Finland has in Rome and Athens. So hopefully in future things pick up again. So, okay, as always, thank you for joining me and on to the show. library so so i um that was my first time in london in i don't know how many years oh really <laughs> yeah really uh, i went to get some books on sensory studies which they don't have here even though there are quite a lot of good books in the kent university library as well yeah mm. and then i visited the petrie museum uh, okay uh, to see the uh, uh, sounds of roman egypt yeah. or uh, better said uh, listen to the sounds of roman yeah. egypt rather than seeing the exhibition. It was really nice. Yeah. Uh, That's a nice little plug there for Sherry Steiner yeah. and Ellen. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was the only thing you, you, you got to see in London then. It was just a, a research trip up there. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. basically. Because you're in Kent now doing postdoctoral research. For, how long is your stint here going to be for? Uh, a, a year. So the, I oh, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah, I will be here. Oh, so you've got Christmas. plenty of time to yeah, go. Yeah, well, <laughs> time is going so fast. Eh? Well, yeah, uh, so, so tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, but yeah, I'm really happy. I have like whole year for my own own work. No other duties, no teaching, no other publications to write. So living the dream. Yeah, it yeah. is the dream. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I'm really happy. So you're gonna take the time to because uh, you're saying you, you you've been to London for for not for for a number of years. Is is there kind of things that you actually want to go out and see, like around just the UK while you're actually here? Are you going to try and take advantage of your, your time here? Yeah, there are loads of places I would like to visit. Um, I don't know where to start. Even <laughs> well, even in London, there are so many time, and so many places I would like to visit. But also like Bath, I would like to go and oh, and maybe bathe in the uh, Roman <laughs> spa. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, uh, I would love to go to the north and Scotland. I've never been to Edinburgh, but oh, I totally yeah, too, yeah totally love it. Many places I'd love to go. I have some friends living in Bristol, so maybe I will go there as well. But I haven't been anywhere except for London for now, mm. <laughs> so I don't know how 
Have you been to Canterbury before? before uh, no, no. Uh, I just came here in uh, January and that was the first time I've been here. Okay. Liking yeah. it as a town? Yes, I love it. It's yeah. so sweet and pretty and I love the houses. And, and even though it's a small town, I think I can find everything I need. Yeah. yeah so. so very kind of concentrated in the yeah. middle. And as you say, I like Canterbury because it melds the old and the new together, I think, quite well. Yeah. It retains a lot of its kind of late medieval architecture. And, well, obviously, you've got the cathedral in the centre of town and the cathedral precinct, but quite a lot of the buildings are still very... Um, oldie worldy, you might yeah, say. Yeah. It's got a nice aesthetic to it. But yeah, I mean, also as well, I mean, well, we've got the best of weather today, but we're starting to slowly drift towards spring and summer, and it gets really nice then. Yeah. It gets really green, and yeah, it should yeah. be really pleasant. Yeah, I'm but... looking forward to it, but I, I don't mind the yeah, little bit colder weather. I well, mean, yeah. I, I imagine, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't do well in hot weather, so I... Yeah, uh... yeah neither do I, actually. I'm one of those people I prefer. I'm one of those... 20, around 20 degrees kind of yeah, people yeah i think yeah me too yeah. yeah you start getting like too low and i'm just like oh i don't like i don't know i get really like my hands and my feet like just can't i just really struggle like i don't know if i've got like a mild form of like like <laughs> i just want to say like arthritis but you know what i mean like i just feel the cold really badly in like things like my my feet and my hands and uh and then also as well when you get to uh summertime it'll get it gets like 30 degrees and some people will oh, be like horrible. oh it's it's so lovely how sunny it is and i'm just like I just wanted to go back to being winter. Stop. Yeah. But no, this is this is probably now around my favourite time of year. Spring slash autumn are my favourite seasons. Yeah. I don't like extremes. So yeah. I'm just starting really picky at the moment. But. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what's the so what's the project about that you're working on while you're while you're here? Well, the title is Making Senses of Roman Neighbourhoods, meaning that I'm looking for how people lived in smaller Roman towns. I I have three towns I'm looking into: uh, Pompeii, Herculaneum, and Ostia. Mm. and I have three case study houses and I'm trying to find uh, what kind of senses and um, sensations the inhabitants of these small towns encountered and how they live with them and did it uh, have some effect on spaces and building and design of the houses and Mm. stuff like that. And then I will also be using literary evidence so that that will come more from Rome itself so so how people in roman neighborhoods got along together and how how they sort of you know managed with the all kinds of smells and sounds and and everything yeah because i've spoke to people before on here about sensory studies i was saying before that i mean one of the examples i go back to is i was reading a biography of charles dickens where they talked about if you went back from the modern world to at the time it was talking about when charles dickens was young Mm. if you went back to like back to that time uh, as soon as you got there, you'd probably throw up because the sensory <laughs> overload would be so much yeah. from the smells in particular. And just, yeah, it would just be so different. And it's really interesting that uh, this kind of avenue that's that's really of research that's really growing in terms of sensory studies because it's interesting how we are populating, I suppose, more and more the image that we have of the ancient world in terms of like people. But also that kind of also needs to be coloured in as well with the the smells the the noises the the touch i suppose of things yeah. as well i suppose touch is something that you can still obviously get to some degree because of the remains but like particularly the idea of smells i think yeah. is a very interesting one yeah. how that would affect people's perception um, of the world around them and also as you say like how it would affect how they'd approach organizing space as yes. well for instance uh, how how were the uh, movement in in houses was uh, 
done in the darkness. How many lamps would you need, for instance, to go around house? Or in the city streets, do you need how many torches you would need and stuff like that? Or And I know that some studies have has shown that in Pompeii, some of the um, uh, wall p paintings were quite light in color, so they reflected color. So that's probably due to the fact that it it would be easier to you know, illuminate the house when you have, you have, have sort of reflecting uh, surfaces mm. and stuff like that. Yeah, I haven't done so much yet about this. I'm still, you know, trying to catch up on literature and find finding the sources. Yeah, it's just as well, it's crazy things like, I mean, it's, it's the case nowadays, but, you know somebody like me who's largely spent most of his life as a you might say a city dweller you forget just even things like how the night sky looks mm. when you're in a town all the time you you go out if you were in the desert for example you know if you're in the sahara and you look up at the night sky it's it's completely different to what you see during that in yeah. like when you're living in a town with all the uh artificial lighting is and yeah. it's very interesting how that even those kind of things must have really impacted on how people understood their place in the world like yes. every night being able to see like these thousands upon thousands of stars whereas nowadays we don't necessarily always get that yeah. like you don't even when you're walking around in say like london at night time i mean how much attention does anybody pay to the night sky probably yeah. nothing really yeah it's actually funny that now being here in here in canterbury i've seen stars much better than in helsinki uh probably it's a smaller town and and not as cloudy probably i think that helsinki in that or in finland in general it might get quite cloudy nights so I don't see the stars. And now I've really paid attention. It's really beautiful in here in the nighttime. And you actually can see the stars mm. even we are in the city area. Yeah. Because no, you don't have to go to the desert necessarily. No, no. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> even, yeah, yeah. I mean, even just yeah. the countryside or whatever. Maybe, maybe that's me just like dreaming of it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, it must must be really something different. But even, even here in Canterbury, you can see the stars, which is great. Yeah. Because what did you? So why 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 was it Canterbury that you you came to for for this? Um, um, well, there are several several reasons. Well, I first of all I wanted to come to UK because the sensory studies are here. Really, mm. like it's a raising trending sort of subject now in in classics and especially here in UK. Uh, not only in Canterbury but also elsewhere. But I know that you have here people doing stuff on on sensory studies, like Patty Baker's project, mm. for instance. And then, of course, Ray Lawrence was a big help for me. I mean, I mean, he's moved on to the other side of the world now. But <laughs> he's left us for yeah. a better place. Yes. <laughs> Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Warmer, at least. Mm. <laughs> but he, he was uh, really helpful with my application. And, um, so the reason... And, and there are other, other scholars here who have worked on, on sensory studies and also archaeology and, of course, Ostia. I will be working also on Ostia. And I, I, I have been working in Pompeii and Herculaneum, and I know, know those areas quite well. But I don't know Ostia that well. Of course, I've visited it and, and you know, you know I know the basics, but I know that there's uh, Luke Lavan who's been oh, working yeah. <laughs> on, on Ostia. So I'm all those reasons why I uh, uh, chose Canterbury. And I'm quite happy now I, that I've come here. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. It seems really nice place. I think you have really nice sort of crew here. <laughs> oh. People from many different kinds of um, 
not just archaeology, but interesting literary studies and mm. sensory studies. Of yeah, course. I suppose because it's quite an interdisciplinary department, yeah. which is links quite well with what you're doing, which is yeah. say you're using archaeology, but also text as yeah. well. And you have to combine the two. I mean, as you were just saying that you've worked on Pompeii and, and Herculaneum. Did yeah. you work as a, a research assistant as part of a project on, on Pompeii? Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that at all? Yeah. What was the kind of aim? Well, um, uh, I've been working for the Finnish Pompeii project, or the Pompeii project from University of Helsinki, uh, which was first led by Professor Paavo Kastren, who has been working mainly on social uh, life of Pompeii. And it started already way back. I mm. don't know. I don't even want to tell how yeah. many years ago. Well, in the early 2000s. And I, I, I worked there as an undergrad student uh, and building analysis and we did also a little bit of excavation couple of in a couple of years sort of started as a student and research assistant and then sort of gradually mm. graduated to a researcher and then I did my own PhD I didn't use much material from Pompeii in my PhD I, I chose Her- Herculaneum because it has this fantastic uh, uh, organic material, including beds there. So it was it was a good good idea for my PhD. But yeah, your yeah. PhD was on, on sleeping, sleeping arrangement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I chose Her- Herculaneum. But I started with finds of Pompeii, and I did a little survey on on Pompeii and uh, research done on the sleeping uh, sleeping areas. Mm-hmm. But mainly, I've been working with the Finnish Pompeii project in 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 the uh, House and insula, so-called Marcus Lucretius, which is in the heart of the city, like in the geographical center of the city. And we have been redocumenting the structures and, as I said, small excavations as well. Okay. I've never actually been to Pompeii or Herculaneum, which oh. is, it comes as a shock to people when yeah. I say that as a Roman archaeologist. But the problem is, is that I mainly focus on late antiquity slash things like Mithras. Yeah. And as such, yeah. that doesn't really like relate too well with Herculaneum and Pompeii. So it's one of those things that I suppose when I go abroad a lot, particularly when I go to places like Italy, it's largely tied in with research. So I haven't, yeah. haven't made it there, but I do... Uh, I do intend to go one day. It's just at the moment the opportunity never never seems to come up so much. Every time I go back, it's always to Rome or, or yeah, somewhere else into it. But yeah. I mean, like some people said to me though that worked on Pompeii that when you work on Pompeii, it's hard to want to ever work on anything else or I suppose Pompeii and Herculaneum together because of you know just the level of preservation and yeah. the, the material that's available to yeah. you. Yeah, you sort of get used to that and think that is the norm. And then you are like shocked <laughs> when you go to some other sites and realize that it, it, it's not the, not the uh, yeah. same level of preservation. And you can't, you, you don't, you just don't have the material to work on. And I think I've spent, I, I was just counting the months I've spent there. I think I've spent a whole year in Pompeii, yeah. in, you know, within 10 years, of course. But anyway, I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine when you go to a site in like Britain and they're like, "Here's our post holes." And you're like, "That's nice." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, that's much better. Much no, not not. Let's not say better, but much more than anything we have in Finland. So, well, yeah, so yeah. there's the difference. And I uh, I would say that Pompeii can be a little bit too obvious in a way. You get used, you get stuck with the uh, what you see, uh, and then in the sites where you don't have that much left, you really have to maybe work more to find out and reconstruct the 
the past. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? That sometimes the uh, maybe the issue, I suppose, with Herculean and Pompeii, as you say, is because everything, not everything, but it's so much of it's like just there that sometimes... I guess you could say that you have to work more at other sites to mm. kind of, to build a kind of synthesis of it, which perhaps sometimes in maybe the case of Pompeii and Herculaneum, people haven't gone that kind of extra step because yeah. it seems so obvious when actually yeah. the answer isn't as obvious as you yeah. think it is, but because the the materials are so like well-preserved and so readily available, that it becomes very easy to, to jump to conclusions. Yeah, and that's bad. I, yeah, uh, I think I've at some points jumped to conclusions a little bit too uh easily and that's something really to avoid mm. yeah the the phd with, yeah. with sleep studies just just quickly because i've got a question <laughs> about this because weeks and weeks ago i had rebecca ushered on the podcast and rebecca is uh, advising on a on a tv show to do with the roman world and they asked her because it's like kind of a drama series okay and they asked her what did the romans wear in bed <gasps> and she didn't and she was she was like it's a question she'd never thought about and she didn't know the answer to. And now yeah. I, I've got somebody here who yeah. can actually answer and, the question. And the, the, the horrible thing is that I don't have a great answer for you because we have so little information yeah. about it. There's this article written about it by, I think, Kelly Olsen, I believe. And there's just so little information available on that that no one can answer for certain. It's it, There are some references for... Uh, changing to some kind of night, light clo- uh, clothes. Mm. But most probably people used the tunics that they were using either daytime or then similar kind of tunics that they were using on, on daytime or maybe naked. But there's, I mean, that's something that it's actually really, I was really trying to look evidence for for any kind of Roman pajamas, but <laughs> <laughs> but there was none. So maybe it's just so mundane that they don't just, you know, mention it often. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, mm. with things like that? It's you know, most people nowadays don't really tend to discuss what they're wearing in bed, so it's not saying that necessarily enter is going to enter into the the textual record, and obviously in the archaeological record, it's not yeah. going to survive. So, and I can't imagine there's too many wall paintings or whatever or frescoes <laughs> that are going to take nope. people asleep. So, yeah, yeah, it's not something you're really going to come yeah. about. And 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 most likely, if if they did change to a different uh, gown for the night time. It was just similar type of what they were using, using daytime. Yeah. Because so it's, it's interesting, just going back to the sensory experience of that, of the smell of the... Yeah. And the comfort. I mean, imagine if you'd had to work all day in a particularly arduous job and you're in Italy and it's summertime yeah. and your clothes are literally soaked through with sweat and then in the evening you go to bed. And I suppose if it was like the middle of summer, they probably would just sleep mm. naked. But even still... But then again, that's the flip side, isn't it? When it's, when it's really warm in the day, you can get freezing cold at yeah. night. So... Yeah, but then if they keep the clothes on, then you, you say if they're like they've just been rinsed through sweat throughout the yeah. day. I mean, God, not even about to take it off. It yeah. must have been pretty. pretty well, I say, I say it's unpleasant, but then I suppose does there come a point with that stuff where you become accustomed to it? I don't know. It's... Well, that's probably one one factor. But um, there's one reference from Marshall, and he refers to this bad smelling person who sleeps in the same clothing night and day. I don't remember it exactly, but something like that. And I first thought that it was a reference to what you were, the phenomenon you were talking like, mm. like uh, sweaty clothes starting to smell. Uh, but I think it's more, uh, he, he refers to the, the purple dye as well. 
and I think it's uh, actually the uh, uh, purple dye that is smelling and not the uh, sweaty clothing. So, okay. So yeah. that's that's very really, an interesting <laughs> yeah. thing. Why yeah. why would the why would the purple dye have a particular? Uh, it's because it's uh, made of some kind of sea animal, a sea snail, or some, uh, uh, okay, some kind yeah. of um, yeah. So the 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 dye had a distinctive odor, uh, and and then he's playing with this idea of person who wants to because it it was obviously. Uh, expensive uh color mm. expensive dye so this person who would want to show this uh expensive clothing night and day would be then smelly night and day or something <laughs> like that i can't remember it exactly so i i sh- maybe i should <laughs> look it up the uh, reference and get back to you but but uh it wasn't as as i first thought it I really first thought that, that he was making fun of someone who was like, you know, wearing the same clothing night and day, and that's that's why he was he or she was smelling. And then, but I don't think that was the case. Okay, that's just very interesting. <laughs> just because in my mind, I was like, what happens later on? Because purple becomes a color of emperors; yes. it becomes a real color. Yeah. So does that mean that the clothes that the emperors had the the colors the way they were? They would have been dyed purple for imperial purple, and then even to like successor kingdoms afterwards. Did their robes actually smell quite badly? Maybe that was. It's a it's a possibility. I don't know. I don't know how you can if you can really get the dye. You know, if you can get the odor sort of yeah uh, less odor odorous later on. I don't that's know. That's a that's a really interesting question. Yeah. And suddenly, like my mind is like <laughs> racing with that yeah. because if it's there's an interest interesting thing there about. It just suddenly hits me like sensory studies in terms of what would it be like in terms of sensory experience coming to an audience with the emperor? Yeah. Like particularly in the later empire when um, I'm I'm kind of oversimplifying a bit here, but, you know, they become much more ornate in what, you know, by Mm -hmm. the time they've completely disregarded any sense that it's not a monarchy and it's only a monarchy when you've got the Tetrarchy Mm -hmm. or Constantine or whatever. I wonder what it must have been like going into a situation like that in terms of sensory experience, because it's just saying about the smells. And I mean, obviously, that's a very interesting question about what their garments have smelled. But obviously, there would have been a lot of probably incense. There would have been a lot of of perfumes in the air. Most likely, There probably would have been a lot of things like there would have been certain sounds as well. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that. It wasn't a case of people like Diocletian, I think, and another later Roman emperors that they sometimes would have like a curtain in front of them. So you wouldn't necessarily always be able to even see them, but you'd maybe hear them. It's I don't know. It's just very interesting how those kind of things would play around. Like, you know, we talk about power and how power is communicated often through things like art and architecture. And but I suppose like something like that, particularly going into an audience of an emperor, you would use the senses as a way of establishing a kind of a hierarchy yeah. because you're kind of you know, it's all kind of a, almost a mystical experience, isn't yeah. it? Like, you know, because the emperors tend to have this kind of element of the divine about yeah. them as well. Sort of imperial smell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they did use senses to sort of uh, make these distinct- distinctions between social classes. Mm. I, I was just uh, examining uh, an MA thesis in Finland. Uh, uh, this MA thesis was about the sensory encounters in Martialis. And and the student was really able to you know tell us about the, how how the Romans used all kinds of different senses to make these social distinctions. So it was really there already in 
time of Ma- Marshall. So, okay. so uh, yeah. you know, elites trying to distinct themselves from the other people, the, the poorer people. Mm. Not always successfully, but at least trying. Yeah. Oh, man. I think I've got a really good mm. idea for an article there now. <laughs> Experiencing in the audience with an emperor. Yeah. That's, 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 that's fascinating. That's really like struck me as a really interesting thing to explore. Just what, what would it be like to go in front of an emperor and how would it, how would it smell? How, yeah. how did the Roman emperor smell? That's, that's just such a... Yeah. It's one of those questions that you just don't ever think about. Really. Yeah, it, and that's uh, really interesting in the of the sensory studies because it's something that you, you when you start thinking about it, then you will just uh, you know start noticing it, it everywhere. It's mm. not just in neighborhoods or how like domestic space, but it's it can be a topic for you know late antique emperors yeah. as well. So you can actually apply the uh, sensory studies. Practically everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, say it's a growing field, so because it is a relatively newish field, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's only something that's only recently been taken up. So there's a tremendous number of avenues to be yeah. explored there. Yeah. And, and classics, classics are sort of you know coming a little bit behind other uh, disciplines. I know that sensory history and anthropologists have been doing it since at least the 1990s. Some of the earliest work, works were published in the 1980s, but it's like truly booming now mm. in the classics. Mm. There are really nice, important articles coming every year. Yeah, because do you do much in the way of um, any kind of experimental stuff with it at all? I mean, because I know some people like kind of experiment with these things. I mean, you know, a number of people do things like they make garum as well, which, mm. my God, when you smell it for the first time, you yeah. realise how much of a, how much the smell actually hits you. But there's, I suppose there's increasingly now, experimental archaeology is a growing field, and I suppose that, that goes quite well hand in hand with sensory, ex- mm. ex- understanding ex- sensory experience in the past. Have you had a chance to do much? No, and I'm not doing anything at the moment i'm hoping i will have more finance more finance for for a later period uh, so that i i won't have to do everything all by myself uh, i have really sort of big plans mm-hmm. <laughs> especially uh, maybe not necessarily experimental archaeology but uh, you know the virtual reality and 3d models oh yeah and i would for instance like to test how lighting was working in the houses like natural lights mm. when do you get sunlight inside a bedroom for instance what are the and how, how the sunlight works yeah. and uh, how many lamps would you need for instance to read in a, r- a dark room or see the wall paintings and stuff like that which can be done with uh, 3d models or and then also i would really really love to test acoustics like what kinds of differences there are if you have a window open or window with shutters and how how different kind of fabrics would uh, make a difference if you have curtains or a lot of mattresses and cushions will take uh, you know suppress the sounds mm. and stuff like that uh, so but that's something I really cannot do only by myself. I don't have the tools for that. So mm. I would actually need the money to uh, hire some engineers, for instance, <laughs> to help me with the with the project. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you know, what you say about that in terms of you know, things like lighting. I mean, that that sort of thing can play a big 
role in I think affecting people's moods and how they feel I mean going back to earlier about being cold I, yeah. I, I've noticed with my flat I the, I'm on one side of the building I've actually got Joe Stoner on the opposite side of the uh. building so our flats are next to each other but her side gets the sun pretty much throughout the day like from where the sun rises it will be facing into her living room for yeah. most of the day and then it goes around the back on my side the sun comes round and it gets into the bathroom and the bedroom in the latter half of the day but the living room, for the most part, unless we get to like the middle of summer, almost barely gets touched by sunlight. I've got windows, so I've got light coming in, but direct sunlight doesn't happen. And there's a real notable difference in terms of the temperature when I move from the back of the flat to the front of the yeah. flat, particularly in an afternoon. But sometimes I just go into the living room and I'm just like, Ugh. I have to turn the, even though I don't actually think it's not that probably that cold. But I feel like I have to turn the heating on sometimes because yeah. it just it feels cold. I don't, I, it, it sounds a strange thing to say, but it it's because I don't get that natural light, and particularly for the daylight when we're yeah. recording today, where it's cloudy as well, so there's not like blue sky coming through. I walk in sometimes to the living room and I'm just like, I need to stick the heating on because it's just if I'm going to sit there, I just feel cold, and, yeah, and even if the temperature's not actually as gloomy. low as I think it is, hmm? sort of gloomy feeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 interesting how that affects. Like things like natural light can affect, yeah. I think, your perception of things like temperature, and and as such, yeah, it can affect. It certainly affects people's moods as well, and it's it's interesting those those kind of questions. As you're saying, there's so many things that you could ask about when it comes to the senses, but how it affects people's everyday everyday lives yeah. in that regard, it's it's very interesting. I mean, sound as well is another one. I mean, you know, people still have it nowadays. I mean, imagine living in a, an insula uh, in, in ancient Rome or, or Pompeii or wherever, and and you can hear like the people above you constantly like moving around all the time. Like, do you get to a point where you just get used to that, or is it annoying for the whole time? It's it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's that is difficult to answer, but that is one of the things I'm interested in in this so-called habituation or adaptation. Whether uh, the inhabitants of these big cities or smaller ones did they, you know, get used to the smells and sounds so that they wouldn't pay attention. Or not there are mm. currently there are sort of you know uh, different uh, and opposing views on the whether it was really a smelly place the whole ancient Rome and yeah. the, especially its cities some people think that it was like a really stinky mess as uh, Anne Kloski Ostrov says <laughs> and other people people think that it was probably not as stinky or horrible as we would like to think this is something that I'm trying or trying to find out. Or people might have actually gotten used to the smells or the sounds. But this is something, of course, quite difficult to find out. But but at, at least I'm trying to find out as best as I, as I can. Yeah. And I was actually now uh, just last week asking some of my some of my friends and family in Finland how they coped with the horrible smells coming from forest industry. I don't know if you know Finland is mm. uh, forest interest industry is one of our b- biggest industries and producing pulp is really really smelly business. It because it produces uh, uh, sulfur okay. sulfur oxide. Yeah. yeah, I think is the word. Hopefully. And it it really rotten smell. And in those towns where you have these uh, p- plants the producing pulp uh, the smell is terrible so i was asking some of my friends and even my mother who used to live in one of the towns um, did they you know get used to it or not i was i i actually thought at first that they would you know you living in a place like that you would just get used to it Mm. 
but they didn't actually. And most of the people said that they they sort of cope with it, but this horrible smell was still there all the time. But because they knew that this was, you know, the factory was bringing money in, many of the people had their family working in the in the uh, factories, so they was they were sort of thinking that even though the smell was horrible, it sort of it was the smell of money. Yeah. <laughs> so it made it tolerable. So there are quite a lot of di- different, you know, coping mechanisms for even for for horrible smells. And I think maybe something of the sort has been going on in Rome. I don't know, but it's it's possible that you know they've sort of learned to live with it and learned to live with the uh, uh, smells that even though they 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 thought that they, it 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 would was bad smell, but they sort of tolerated it. Mm. But there is some some sort of some degree of zoning you can see in the city maps. Like in Pompeii, there is probably just one tannery, and it's situated in the city gates. And of course, you know, in all the all of the Roman world, the uh, cemeteries are out, outside of the city city gates. So there was some sort of zoning going on there. Mm. It's interesting as well because I suppose does part of that also feed into ideas of what how we perceive things like public and private space so Mm. people i suppose tend to get more annoyed by loud noises and smells or whatever when they're at home because the idea is when you're at home that's your space Mm. and you don't like other people interfering with it not just physically but also through noise through smell or whatever and i suppose is there the question in the ancient world where if you're living in insula i mean is it really private space is it do you consider it to be your home in the same way we would consider going home to our flat or our house nowadays in the same way and if you don't consider it to be private space in the same way if you don't consider to have kind of ownership in the same way do you just sort of accept the fact that there's going to be noise there's going to be smell because it's just the way it is if that makes sense yeah well it, uh i totally understand what you're saying and it is something i actually sort of looked in my phd uh, whether the cubicula uh, the bedrooms were so considered as private spaces or not mm. and i would argue that at least the elites wanted to have their bedrooms silent and quiet and private. Mm. But that's something that it was not uh, available for all classes. So obviously, the lower you are on a social hierarchy ladder, then the, le- la- the less possibilities you, you had for a private and quiet sleeping area. But of course, even though, I mean, this comes across in many literature passages, and the elites is really like, you know, they, they really enjoyed their peaceful uh, bedchambers whenever possible. And then they were really annoyed if they, the, the bedchambers were not uh, quiet. Uh, but, for instance, smells didn't, you know, respect these boundaries. Mm. So you could have like, uh, and neither did noise, noises always not 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 always in the uh, in the elite quarters we know this passage from cicero he tells us that he can hear his neighbor snoring <laughs> <laughs> so in, even though they would you know they were appreciating the uh, you know quiet and peaceful cham- bed- bedchambers uh, even the elite didn't always get what they wanted yeah, yeah. Uh, and so in a way they especially sounds and smells would invade your privacy even though if even if they were sort of visibly private so that you can close the door behind you and nobody would see you in there you could still hear the noises 
and smell the smells from outside. Mm. Did they have earplugs? Well, I, 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 I haven't come across. <laughs> yeah. so, one of those kind of random questions that pops <laughs> yeah. into your mind. And you're That's thinking. a good question. I, I will have to, you know, put make a note of it and try to find out. I know there's this really interesting passage from Seneca who complains about uh, he he's living above bathhouse and he com- complains about the noises coming coming from there and and but I don't remember him mentioning anything to to use as earplugs but I will have to check that bath passage again if there is something you know or some kind of way he he sort of uh, muffles the sound I don't know Mm. There might be. <laughs> it's just, uh, well, yeah. it's, again, like, is there, mean, what did they wear in yeah. bed? That's these kind of questions. Yeah. That, anyway, um, I mean, you would, uh, you know, air plugs, plugs made of wax would totally be possible. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. again, it's one of those things that people just take it for granted. And is there? A, yeah. How do you? How do you discern that stuff unless yeah. somebody mentions it in the text? Yeah. Um, it's just oh, yeah, so many avenues. Um, so. Going back a bit, how how did you end up going down the road of, of Roman archaeology? What kind of brought you down? There? I mean, because as you say, like Finland itself is you know, most people I've spoken to on this podcast have come from you know, well, basically from countries that used to be formerly part of the Roman Empire. Mm. Well, Patty being exception, being from America, but then that that does tend to have quite a strong tradition of following on, I suppose, from the kind of Anglo. Yeah. Anyway, but how did how did you kind of get exposed to this up in, in Finland? Uh, well, uh, I've always been really interested in history, and uh, history was my favorite subject in school. Uh, I was especially fascinated by the Greek gods and their adventures. I mean, really <laughs> great stuff. And I I always thought that I might do history, even though as a teenager I wanted something else. I was thinking of becoming a journalist or maybe a diplomat before I realized that I'm not a very diplomatic person. <laughs> um, then when I was uh, studying for the uh, our equivalent for A-levels, I uh, I was studying and I took history. And then I realized that this is something I want to do and I want to continue at the university. But even then I was still thinking about doing Finnish history. And just only when I was uh, applying to the university, uh, University of Helsinki, I saw uh, that there was a possibility to do classics. I didn't, I hadn't even thought of classics being something you could do for a living. Mm. And uh, we have entrance exams, so we had to. I had to study for the entrance exams, and I saw that there was this uh, exam for the Latin, uh, Latin literature and Roman, uh, Latin language and Roman literature. And it sounded really interesting, and uh, I studied for it, and I got accepted, and so here I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even though Finland has never been part of the Roman Empire, Tacitus mentions this, these poor and feral Finns in his Germania uh-huh. <laughs> in the really last chap- chapter. Uh, but still, Latin is the thing that has sort of connected us with the uh, rest of the Europe, and of course, because it was the language of of Catholic Church, and mm. Finland was part of that that world. So, and Latin has been has always been very important at the university. So there have been several centuries studies of Latin, mm. and then of course I have to mention uh, we, uh, Finland has a institute in Rome. I don't know if you know it. It's uh, the Finnish Institute in Rome, situated in Cianicolo, in this very beautiful Renaissance villa. And I I have to say that maybe it was just the beauty of the house that (laughs) 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 uh, got my attention. 
and I have been participating on the courses they offer for Finnish students, and I was their PhD fellow as well. And it, it, that has had a huge impact on my career, and I think that it has impacted or so so many other people in in, in Finnish uh, classics and medieval studies. So it has had huge huge impact, and I really love the place. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, that was sort of my way. I uh, I I sort of fell in love with the uh, Latin language and Roman archaeology and Roman literature from the day one at the uni or maybe the day two the third day something like yeah. that. <laughs> and it was so interesting and I I've, I sort of I've always been interested in how ordinary people lived I'm sort of like a neighborhood spy yeah. <laughs> trying to spy on how people lived and 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 these studies give you a tool to find out how these people 2000 years ago lived and and it's just fascinating, I think. Yeah, is is the study of classics more broadly in Finland quite quite big? Archaeology quite big. I mean, as you said earlier, you weren't really aware of it too much yourself before you went to university. Is it something that does have a significant kind of following? I mean, I know, uh, for example, I mean, you mentioned Ray earlier. Ray is mm. in Australia now. I mean, Ray Ray talks quite often about how there's been a massive explosion in the interest in terms of ancient history classics in Australia. Um, but I mean, yeah, someone like Finland is it is it is there quite a strong interest uh, amongst the population, or is it quite something that you don't come across too much? Um, obviously, my view is biased now because because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been just done classics so so many years. But uh, there are you can study classics or ancient history in more than one university, not just in Helsinki, but also in Turku, uh, Tampere. Uh, and also in University of Oulu. I wouldn't say the community is big, but I would say it's quite strong. Okay. And also we have a lot to thank for the Finnish Institute in Rome, and then we have also an institute in Athens. Those are really like, you know, strongholds of Finnish classics studies. So so I think the community, as I said, community is really strong, but it's quite small. Everyone knows everyone <laughs> <laughs> which is basically a good thing yeah yeah, yeah. strengthens yeah. the bonds yeah. between people yeah and there for instance classical archaeology doesn't have a very good standing in finland uh, we don't we don't even have a professor in none of these universities there is uh, not a professor of classical archaeology we had a one lecture in university of helsinki but now due to the cuts budget cuts <laughs> There is no longer uh, even a lecturer of classical archaeology, so it, just that's the UK, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so that's bad. But um, but at least you can study languages and you can study sort of ancient material material culture with your language studies. And then there's of course the Department of Archaeology, which is mainly concentrating on the Finnish archaeology. But of course you can you can study archaeology there and you know get to know the methods and and theories of archaeology okay. within that department. Do you think it's a subject that will... I mean, you said it's been cut. Do you think it's a subject that will expand a lot in coming years, or are you a bit uncertain about that? I think it's not, because, uh, as I said, it, it has been subject to cuts. Mm. And um, then there are quite a lot of new subjects, really important subjects, that are sort of competing with classics. And 
Uh, and I, I don't like the idea of putting, you know, classics versus something else. All, all the subjects and disciplines are really important. But I'm afraid that classics has become a bit endangered. Not mm. not completely, but it, I don't think it's going to grow much. I think yeah. it's... I, I'd, I'd be happy to see if it would survive as it is now. Yeah. True. Uh, but there are a lot of very... Uh, good projects going on, for instance, several ERC grants, grant pro- projects concerning classics and ancient studies in, in in the University of Helsinki at the moment. So, so I think the research done in Finland is quite good quality, mm-hmm. and people are really enthusiastic. So, if you actually take classics and graduate from classics, you are like really, yeah. <laughs> really into it. <laughs> yeah, as as you're finding now, I mean, there's obviously the the, the possibility to, uh, for international collaboration as well, yeah. and as you're saying, to go go abroad to yeah. to the schools in Rome and in Athens as well. So yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot of possibilities there. I suppose as itself to the case, and probably what we're going through now in this country. I mean, classics and ancient history are doing quite well in the UK. Archaeology, not so much at the moment. But sometimes with these things, it, it can be a case that you just have to wait it out a little bit and see where it goes. But at least, I, I suppose. It's one of those things that, that it tends to be swings and roundabouts that one subject's on top now, but eventually mm. another subject comes back round again. So all it takes sometimes is a really successful TV series or something, yeah. and that's yeah. all it, that is literally all it can take yeah. to suddenly turn the tide. But I suppose it's one of those subjects that's always going to have an appeal, at least to some people. Yeah, yeah, and I think that ancient history is really uh, popular, not in Finland, not only in Finland, but also here worldwide. You know, there are. Uh, TV series, well, there's been some years since Rome, but anyway, mm. and then um, uh, video games, stuff like that. People are in, still interested in the ancient history, even in popular culture. So I think we still have something to offer. Yeah. Yeah. Moving towards just uh, wrapping up, uh, do you have have you got any publications or anything you would like to, to plug at all? Anything? Uh... Because the PhD is published. Correct? Yeah, it was so, uh, article based, so okay. all the articles are out, uh, except for one that I didn't have uh, published. Uh, I didn't have uh, uh, permission to publish online, but all the others mm. are published online. So anyone, if anyone wants to read about <laughs> my uh, publications on Roman sleeping, you can find them on my academia.edu uh, mm-hmm. pages. Uh, I was just working with some of my colleagues, uh, and we we wrote an article on on a house in Herculaneum. That is something I didn't have permission to publish online, but I can send a PDF if mm. anyone's interested. Is it in a journal or anything at all? Is it? It's in journal called Vesuviana. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it I I think it's the latest edition of Vesuviana. But as you say, I mean, you can send people a PDF, but you've you've got it on your academia.edu yeah. page, so people can see where the journal is and yeah. go look it up. Yeah, you're you're on social media, Twitter and the likes as well. Yes, people want to find I you am. There. Uh, I'm in Twitter, though. So I still I um, I mostly tweet in Finnish. I haven't really decided, you know, because yeah. I mean, there are quite a lot of interesting stuff coming from Finland, and so I. Well, it's it's an interesting yeah. one. Just going back to uh, <laughs> when I had Zina Kamash on, and we were talking about 
Twitter and the importance of uh, Twitter. She would like to see Twitter to vary out more in terms of language use. She'd like to see people tweeting in more than one language. So there's nothing nothing wrong with that. I actually have two Twitter accounts. The other one is my personal account where I usually just rant about politics and inequality. (laughs) (laughs) And that's mostly in Finnish. But then I had this other sort of research related. And I'm trying to, you know... uh, uh, mm, tweet about not just classics or mainly classics but not just not not only uh, history and uh, but also other types of research for instance uh, uh, sleep research obviously because mm-hmm. i've been doing <laughs> work on sleeping arrangements but not just uh, you know cultural sleeping arrangement but also sleeping sleep studies as well uh, canine studies for instance mm-hmm. which is a big thing at the moment as well and i'm sort of keeping an eye on it because I I have dogs myself. And so I'm trying to sort of, you know, tweet about uh, research-related stuff in my Twitter account. So you can find it. Uh, it's uh, I don't know if you can find it with my name. I'm so It's sort of research auntie. Okay. <laughs> you know, so auntie Laura yeah. uh, uh, tweeting on, on, on research, but it's tiedetäti, which okay. is... Might be a bit difficult yeah. to find, I can, but I can link it in the description yeah. of the of the um, yeah. uh, podcast uh, blurb explanation, yeah. whatever. But yeah, uh, I suppose the most important question to end on though is also as well: Do you tweet pictures of your dogs at all? Uh, yeah, but I mainly <laughs> mainly uh, use Instagram for that. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I yeah uh, I don't want to you know flood uh, my Twitter feed with my dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the most important thing for social media, though. Getting those dogs. Well, their names. Well, uh, Pixie and Tesla. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Right. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Yeah. It was really fun. <laughs> and, and and congratulations on doing this. I mean, if this was, oh. what, 21st already? 20th episode we're on. Yeah. 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 20 weeks of doing this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I've, yeah. Still, I've still got more guests lined up in future as well. So yeah. it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you.